I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, science journalist Joe Marchin returns to the show and takes us on a journey into the science of mind over body in her latest book, Cure. Jo Marchin is an award-winning science journalist based in London. She has a PhD in genetics and medical microbiology from St Bartholomew's Hospital Medical College in London and an MSc in science communication from Imperial College London. She's worked as an editor at New Scientist and at Nature, and her articles have appeared in publications including The Guardian, Wired and The Observer Review. She's the author of Decoding the Heavens, which was shortlisted for the 2009 Royal Society Prize for Science Books, and The Shadow King, which you might remember we talked about in our previous Little Atoms. Her latest book is Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. So Jo, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's talk about Cure. What's it about? What's the idea behind the book? Well, Cure describes an idea, really, I suppose, this idea that the mind can heal us. And it's um, a very polarising idea or question, if you like, whether the mind can influence physical health. You get all sorts of claims of miracle cures on one side. You know, I had a look on Amazon, you've got all these books, Mm -hmm. you know, how the mind can heal the body, how to heal the sick as a beginner, you know, all of these kind of books that suggest that the mind can pretty much cure anything if you just change your attitude on life. On the other side, you've got sceptics who will say that any idea of healing thoughts is quackery, pseudoscience, Mm. deluded. And that appealed to me, really. Neither of those extremes really felt right to me. And so I just wanted to have a look at the science and find out, well, what research is being done in this area and what is it really telling us? That's the book, really. It's me going to find out uh, what the science has to tell us about it. The idea now, although, as we've said, this is, it's still a polarising idea, but the idea that there, there is a divide between the mind and the body is self-evidently a, a daft idea nowadays, but it does sort of still persist. So where does it come from originally? Well, everyone always blames it on Descartes, don't they? The philosopher in the 17th century supposedly divided stuff things that exist into the the physical world, material, measurable, objective things, Mm -hmm. um, which he said were valid for scientific exploration, I suppose. Um, And then the the spirit, the soul, the mental world, the sort of ephemeral thoughts, emotions and beliefs, which were sort of less real from a scientific Mm -hmm. point of view, more for the church, but not really for science. And of course now, you know, if you ask most neuroscientists, they wouldn't see it in that way. They wouldn't split the mind and the body in that way. You know, it's every thought that we have will have a 
you know, a particular configuration of neurons firing that's associated with it. You can't really have one, you know, you can't have the brain changing without the mind or vice versa. Mm -hmm. The the two are the same. But this idea of this split between mind and body still, it's like a hangover, I suppose. Like most scientists wouldn't say that they think that the two are split, but just in the way that a lot of scientists think and approach the world and talk about things, that idea is still hiding there, I think. And then there are are some other things that have happened as well in medicine, more specifically. So the invention of a lot of diagnostic tools for example, microscopes, autopsies, a lot of the mm-hmm. you know diagnostic tests we have has really shifted the focus in medicine away from the subjective experience of the patient, which used to be pretty much all the doctors had to go on, towards the sort of structural abnormalities in the body to the point at which now, you know, if a patient says they feel ill but the doctor can't see anything sort of structurally, physically wrong, they're almost treated as if they haven't got a real condition at all. And then, of course, in the 1950s, you've got the introduction of randomised controlled trials where we test new drugs and interventions against placebo. And that's been an incredibly important advance you know, that's helped to bring about huge developments in medicine that have saved a lot of lives. It's really important because then we know that drug is actually working itself rather than, you know, people just getting better through a placebo effect. But at the same time, it's meant that we kind of focus on the direct kind of biochemical effects of drugs, if you like, and we discount everything else because that's what's in the placebo group so we don't really have a good way to measure or to value the effects of social psychological elements of care on health and I think that has been quite damaging for medicine. And I find that's one of the interesting things that comes out of the book this idea that you'll have a double blind trial to test some new medicine or new technique. I want to get into the placebo talking about to begin with there's a treatment for spinal injuries with cement that I'll ask you to sort of explain a bit more in a moment and this is a classic example of that. There'll be a, a you know a double blind test on something and they'll end up saying you know this drug has no better effects than you know than placebo and therefore it's a bad drug it gets thrown out therefore it's no good it's it's not a good treatment and we don't explore the idea that oh actually that suggests that it does work it just doesn't work in the way that we're anticipating it working tell us about that concrete thing yeah so it's a technique called vertebroplasty so this is um to treat a fractured spine which is quite common particularly in older people with osteoporosis where they might have a fall and one of the vertebrae gets fractured they interviewed a, a lady who had this happen Um, So she'd slipped on uh, wet tiles in her her kitchen, um, fractured her spine and was really having trouble. She couldn't walk, she couldn't stand to do the dishes. She loved playing golf, she couldn't play golf. She was having trouble sleeping because of the pain. So she took part in a trial for this procedure where essentially surgeons inject medical cement into the fractured bone to strengthen it. Um, And a few years ago, this was becoming incredibly popular because it was having dramatic results. You know, patients were saying the pain had gone within hours of the procedure. They were back to normal activities within days. And so she took part in a randomised control trial of this, which was unusual because it involved testing the real surgery against fake surgery, which is something that's becoming more common in the past, they have, you know, a lot of surgery just kind of gets introduced and it seems to yeah. work, so we run with it. What hasn't really been seen as ethical to do fake surgery. But in this case, um, the patients were brought into the room um, and then the surgeons sort of acted out the whole procedure if they were in the placebo group. They got an injection of local anaesthetic into their back and then the, the surgeon would uncap the cement so the smell would waft around the room. and So everything would be exactly the same as if they were getting the injection, there just wouldn't be that injection. And, and the, the woman I spoke to was in the placebo group and yet the pain went you know she was telling me it was a miracle you know she was back to playing golf no problem so this is yeah a classic example of a trial where something seems to be working but then when it's tested against placebo there's no difference but actually both groups 
do much better than no treatment. In that particular trial, pain and disability scores were halved, I think, across both groups. Mm-hmm. With There was a lot of spread. Some of the patients, um, like Bonnie Anderson, the woman I spoke to, had sort of dramatic improvements, others less so. But, but overall, the scores were, were halved. And traditionally, that's been explained away by just the idea of natural history, for example. A lot of people do get better anyway, regardless. Or regression to the mean, where people's um, symptoms are perhaps at their worst when they go into the trial. But there's kind of been this growing feeling you know for example amongst the surgeons who did that trial they really felt that those improvements were too dramatic to be just explained by that and neuroscientists over the last couple of decades now have been finding that actually there's something else going on you know there are measurable biological changes in the brain that occur when people respond to placebo Mm -hmm. that are identical in some cases to the changes that are caused when we take drugs so when we say oh something's no better than placebo that doesn't mean that there isn't necessarily a clinical benefit there so that yeah, that was the idea that I was really interested in exploring. What What is happening when we take a placebo? And is there any way that we could actually make use of that rather than just throwing it out? So what is happening then? Let's talk about some examples of what happens in the brain when we take... Because there isn't just a placebo. There's lots of different types of placebo effects, for instance. Yeah, so there's one of the pioneers of placebo research is a neuroscientist in Turin, Italy, called Fabrizio Benedetti. Yeah. And he likes to say there isn't just one placebo effect. There are many. So every condition that researchers look at when they pin down the mechanism it's a different mechanism depending Mm -hmm. on what um, what the condition is so for pain for example there are different mechanisms just in pain but one of them is that when people respond to a placebo painkiller scientists see the the release of endorphins in the brain so these natural pain relieving chemicals and in fact opioid drugs like uh, morphine and heroin are designed to mimic endorphins Mm -hmm. they bind to the same receptors as endorphins and you can block the action of those opioid drugs with another drug called naloxone which blocks the endorphin receptors and the placebo response to painkillers can be blocked with that exact same drug so it's a biochemical pathway the same pathway that the drugs are using that you can also then block biochemically so if you take a placebo painkiller and you think that your pain has eased you haven't just imagined that there is a physical change in the brain that has changed exactly as if you would have taken a drug parkinson's disease is another condition that's quite well studied for Mm -hmm. placebo responses so when patients respond to placebo there you see a flood of dopamine in Mm -hmm. the brain which is the exact neurotransmitter that they're lacking that causes their symptoms so just as when they take their real drug you get a flood of dopamine you see the same thing with a placebo to give a third example altitude sickness is another condition that Benedetti is looking at because you can work with healthy people you can induce it just by taking them to the top of a mountain and that's what he does he has a lab three and a half thousand meters up in the Alps and you can give people fake oxygen you know they're breathing an oxygen canister but actually it's empty and there he sees a reduction in neurotransmitters called prostaglandins which are behind many of the symptoms of altitude sickness so in all of these cases it's a different mechanism for each but you're seeing these biological changes just as you would see with drugs. I'm Alex Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's definitely something going on at the moment with the sort of over-prescription of pain medications. A lot of, even like, you know, sort of big-name famous pain medications come out of, of double-blind trials as not any better than placebos anyway. And also... Loads of those opioid ones are obviously heavily addictive. People just end up having to, you know, they, their bodies get used to them. They have to keep taking greater and greater doses of them, which increases the chances of them being addicted. So so what benefits could the placebo have 
around pain medication. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like opioid painkillers, particularly in the US, not only in the US, but it's it's a huge problem. I think at last count, um, 16,000 people were dying every year in the US from overdoses of prescription painkillers. So this is a massive problem. These drugs that in the past were given just for terminal cancer pain because Mm -hmm. they're very addictive are now being prescribed just for all sorts of chronic pain and I think what placebo research tells us is that pain is not a purely sort of physical pharmacological issue if you like we can talk a bit more about some of the studies in a minute but it's it's influenced very much by psychological and social and cultural factors Mm -hmm. so it gives us some other ways into treating pain rather than just coming straight in with their heavy duty drugs we can actually harness some of those pathways within the brain by using um, psychological approaches give us an example of, of a study that does that Well, so, for example, um, there are studies where doctors change the words that they use to describe the drugs that they're giving. So, for example, we don't only get placebo effects when we take a placebo. When you take a real drug, you're getting a combination. You're getting that the direct sort of active effect of that drug Mm -hmm. in addition to the psychological response to that drug. And often those are actually both working through the same pathway. So by changing the words that are used when that drug is prescribed, um, the appearance of the pill, for example, there's a lot of work on, for example, things like big pills work better than small ones, brand names work better than generics, two Mm -hmm. pills works better than one, you know, anything that makes a pill seem more impressive as a a treatment tends to, to work better. There's also some very interesting work coming out of Harvard looking at how care is delivered so often they're just looking at placebos whether that's a pill or sometimes they're looking at placebo acupuncture where everyone's getting the same but this is for conditions like um, irritable bowel syndrome for example where people have a lot of gut pain among other symptoms or acid reflux disease is another condition they've looked at but if the therapist is warm and empathic versus Uh, polite but cold Mm -hmm. say um, people have much better relief from their symptoms even if everyone's had the same thing or if the consultation is longer so like a 40 minute consultation with lots of personal questions um, compared to your sort of standard 20 minute consultation again you can see surprisingly large differences so the, the people with the longer consultation do better so this is just showing us that you can use the if you can sort of tease out these ingredients perhaps we can use those to um, enhance the efficacy of the drugs that we are prescribing Um, There are also some studies showing that um, honest placebos can work too. There's always been this assumption that for a placebo to work, you have to think that you're receiving an effective medical treatment. But there are studies in several conditions now showing that that's not necessarily true. And you can take a placebo, know it's a placebo, and it will still work, Um, possibly because just maybe being in a trial or being cared for receiving medical treatment is sort of sending some you know signal to the body regardless of what you actually believe about the treatment um, there are also pharmacological conditioning effects where the body learns a response to a particular drug which work regardless of you know what you think about what you're taking so there are ways there where we could perhaps ethically use placebos to reduce pain so yeah sorry so <laughs> there, well both two of those things you've just mentioned I want to go into a bit more detail on I mean that's that's the key thing isn't it we, listeners listening to this might be thinking well you know why are we not using these things? But the key thing about the placebo effect is the ethics of basically you're asking doctors to, to lie to patients and give them something that isn't 
you know, supposed to be effective. But as you just mentioned, then suddenly there's this idea of honest placebo. So you talk about a guy, Ted Kapchuk, is that pronouncing it yeah, correctly? Ted Kapchuk. Ted yeah. Kapchuk. So what, what work did he do? Um, so there's a, yeah, a particular study that he did uh, published in 2010 on irritable bowel syndrome. So that was giving people placebos and telling them that they were placebos um, and comparing that to no treatment. So in the no treatment group, presumably you'd have all the people that would have got better anyway and I, I met a woman who um, was in that trial um, Linda Bonanno she's from Massachusetts she'd had irritable bowel syndrome for 20 years all the different therapies she tried hadn't worked and she went took part in this trial thought she was going to be given the latest experimental treatment and they said oh here's a sugar pill you know we think it you know we think it might help you um, so she said she was pretty disappointed really she couldn't really see the point in it but you know she went ahead and took it didn't have any expectation for it really um, and within a few days said that her symptoms dramatically improved and that improvement lasted for the three weeks of the trial and then when um, the trial ended and she no longer had the placebos um, her condition worsened again and there were 80 people in that trial and overall you know she wasn't alone the ones who got the honest placebo did significantly better than the ones who got no treatment so this does show that in some cases they can work I mean obviously if there is an effective conventional treatment for a condition you want to be taking that because then you've got the drug effect and the placebo mm-hmm. effect. But there are cases with conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and chronic pain and mild to moderate depression where actually drugs aren't particularly better than placebo and there are significant downsides to drugs mm-hmm. like side effects and addiction. So some researchers do suggest that in those cases, you know, you might be able to offer patients an honest placebo if they to try that if they wanted to before progressing to an active drug. But I think it's not all about placebos, it's just that that shows us how big the role of the mind can be in, you know, controlling the level of the symptoms that we experience and then that also leads you on to a lot of other approaches for dealing with pain and I talk about some of those in the book as well so it's not necessarily that we should all go out and take placebos but it's just showing us the value of all of these other elements how care is delivered our expectations of you know and how our expectations for how we're going to improve you know all of these things are important for our sort of physical outcomes and well it's one thing suggesting that you know an honest placebo might work because you know somebody's going to a you know a clinical setting they're in a hospital anyway they're taking part in a trial um and going through those motions but there's, there's actually people selling what are basically fake drugs online as well so you can just take at home a placebo knowingly um yeah i bought some um online you know there are co- you can google them there are companies there's one company for example where they're they're like um you know that those blue and white capsules they look like the drugs that you could buy from the from or i guess that you get prescribed um, but they're empty um, and all the packaging is very convincing they're totally honest about the fact that it's hmm. a placebo but they're trying to hit all those buttons make it look real there's another company where they look like homeopathic remedies i mean obviously a lot of people think well, that they're placebos anyway but these are actually marketed as placebos so mm-hmm depending on what type of medical approach appeals to you you can pick your placebo and you know there are I've spoken to people who swear that this has worked for them but yeah I think it just comes down to your expectations for something and perhaps you know because you could just use smarties anything you want as a placebo if you wanted to but maybe there's something about all of that packaging and receiving it from a sort of official source that might at some level increase your expectation for what you're trying to do and also the people that are selling them would also argue that the placebo is also just giving you a a sort of if you make a little ritual out of taking it it's giving you um, an opportunity to just to focus on your symptoms I suppose and how you want them to 
improve. In brain scanning studies, for example, when people respond to placebo painkillers, you see these changes in the brain that are identical to those that would be caused by the drug. But you also see other changes in the prefrontal cortex, for example, areas of the brain involved in motivation, planning, decision making, those change mm-hmm. too. And, and, and some researchers think that actually that's that's kind of changing somebody's attitude to their pain, making them less afraid of it, if you like, because they've taken steps to do something about it. And certainly in chronic pain, when people can get locked into quite damaging spirals where you don't go out and take part in activities because you're worried that it's going to increase your pain, but then you're sat inside and you don't have anything to distract you, so then you feel the pain even more and the anxiety. And, and so there may be something about just the act of taking something that can help to turn that around as well. So there are, you know, it's, it's complicated. There are lots of different things going on. You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Jo Marchant about her book Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. And Jo, in the first part you mentioned the idea of conditioning and there's there's a scene in this book where you're in the canteen of some lab and you're given a drink which is basically like a strawberry milkshake with sort of lavender oil in it. What's that about? Yeah, this is one of the weirdest things that I kind of looked at. So yeah, this green drink, it's strawberry milk with green food colouring and a lot of lavender essential oil and it's disgusting. Like you drink it and you're kind of hitting all your senses like it's it looks green but it tastes purple, it's bitter, it's sweet, you know. It's something that's different to anything that you've ever tasted before. And it's, it's part of this trial going on in Germany to see if this drink can suppress the immune system of kidney transplant patients without drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, that sounds pretty pretty mad, right? But it's based on physiological conditioning, learned associations. So if you think of Pavlov's dogs, where they learned to associate being fed with a neutral psychological cue, like a sound or a light, until... They didn't need to actually have the meat there anymore. They would salivate just in response to the sound mm-hmm. or the light. And it turns out that this doesn't just work for salivation and digestion. It works for lots of different physiological functions in the body, including the immune system. So if you, for example, take um, an immunosuppressant drug a couple of times, your body will learn the response to that drug. And then if you take the pill again, even if it's a placebo, and even if you know it's a placebo, mm-hmm. that learned response will automatically kick in and that placebo will suppress your immune system so ordinary placebos where you just take something and you think it's going to have a certain effect a sort of conscious expectation they tend to work very well for symptoms that we're consciously aware of things like nausea pain fatigue depression they don't tend to be effective for those sort of basic physiological processes of disease. So uh, they don't really affect uh, hormone levels, for example, or immune responses. But if you've learned the association, they Mm -hmm. do affect these functions. So the idea is that the kidney transplant patient takes their immunosuppressant drugs alongside this bizarre green-purple drink a few times and then the trial is looking to see whether then if you have the drink on its own will that suppress the immune system and so that would allow you to reduce drug doses which is really important for transplant patients because those immunosuppressant drugs they have to take to stop their body from rejecting the transplanted organ are themselves extremely toxic Mm -hmm. and actually directly toxic to the kidney so often um, when kidneys are lost it's because of the toxicity of the drugs actually so reducing those doses would help those kidneys to survive longer. 
And this has been shown in well, a range of animal studies. There's very good evidence in animal studies where you can transplant second hearts into rats. And if they've learned to associate... In, in the rats, they use um, saccharin, like a sweetened water. They associate the immunosuppressant drug with a sweet taste. And then the sweet taste alone, with just a very tiny drug dose that on its own wouldn't do anything, is then enough to stop them from rejecting their heart, which I found amazing. And then there are studies now on healthy volunteers showing that with the green drink, this works too. And in people with dust mite allergy, um, psoriasis, um, and now these trials with the kidney transplant patients. Mm-hmm. So it's just one of those little-known areas of, of research. You know, it's quite a lot of prejudice amongst immunologists against this kind of work. It's quite hard to get funding for this kind of work. But, you know, I've, I found that just really fascinating. I really think that, there, you know, there's quite a lot of promise there if we could perhaps alternate drugs and placebos to get the same clinical benefits but with lower drug doses. That, would, that could really help to improve quality of life for patients. And I think it emphasises that throughout the book, I'm not talking about either or we're not going to be throwing out physical Mm -hmm. drugs and treatments and using the healing power of our minds but it's just about can we use the mind in a kind of clever way to enhance the effectiveness of the drugs that we take so using the two approaches together we're going to move away from the placebo effect although of course i mean it it will continue to underpin a lot of the stuff we talk about but we'll move away from discussing it directly but before we do we talked a little bit in the first part about how it works in terms of how our brain makes it work well let's perhaps talk about why it works what would be i mean is there any evolutionary benefit from this so, yeah, and for, for me, this is the most interesting question about the placebo effect. And it's kind of the question that I had right from the beginning, because it sounds too good to be true, right? <laughs> you know, this idea that you expect a certain change is going to happen, and it happens, you know. And I think that is why a lot of people find it so difficult to believe that the placebo effect is something real, because, like, why? <laughs> why would that happen? And it also makes it sound a bit dangerous, you know, because if you can, like, give somebody fake oxygen when the top of the mountain, and that reduces their altitude sickness and improves their physical performance, are they not exerting themselves? like more than they should but it turns out that the answer is really to do with um you have to think about symptoms like pain nausea fatigue why are we consciously aware of those symptoms in the first place you know if you've damaged your ankle for example there's no inherent reason why you have to be consciously aware of that the fact that we're consciously aware of it means that it's evolved for a purpose you know these symptoms are warning signals Mm -hmm. they're aimed at changing our behavior to get us out of danger so you know if you've broken your ankle and it's hurting that's a sign that you need to stop and rest and seek medical attention if you're feeling sick when you eat something that's a sign that you might have been poisoned and you need to stop eating whatever it is that you're eating or fatigue you know whether it's because you've got the flu or whether it's because you're at the top of a mountain that's telling you that you need to rest exerting yourself could be dangerous and what I think is really fascinating that's coming out of the research is that obviously physical signals from the body are really important in the level of these symptoms that we feel but actually the brain is it's kind of incorporating a lot of different signals from different sources to calculate what level of the symptom we should feel so injury infection are important but also things from your external environment like temperature and oxygen levels that's feeding into that decision if it's hot you will feel tired more quickly Mm -hmm. because it's potentially more dangerous for you to be exerting yourself the same with oxygen levels and then in addition to that there's evidence from placebo research but a lot of different fields of research that our psychological perception of the situation we we're in feeds into that too so if you've got good reason to believe that there's a danger then that will up your sensitivity to the relevant symptoms so if you're eating and everyone around you suddenly starts clutching their stomachs and throwing up the chances are you're going to start feeling pretty sick too because rather than waiting for you to ingest that dangerous pathogen and then to sort of detect that directly and start Mm -hmm. feeling sick your brain's inducing that nausea straight away to stop you from eating any more food and perhaps you might even throw up and if that's a false alarm you might miss a meal 
But if there really is a dangerous pathogen or poison in that food, that could save your life. So there's a very strong sort of evolutionary pressure for that. Whereas on the other hand, if you feel safe, supported, you've received what you believe to be effective medical treatment, that is telling your brain that the crisis is over. There's not so much need then for the pain. So it's not like these factors can necessarily completely eradicate pain, nausea and these other symptoms, but there's a big amount of leeway where these symptoms can vary up and down, depending on your mental perception of your situation and essentially the amount of threat that you think that you're in. And that's why things like stress and anxiety can exacerbate an awful lot of different conditions because they're just generally sensitising you to those different symptoms. And as I was saying before, that's not just an all-in-the-mind thing, that's underpinned by these physical, biological changes in the brain. We'll get on to stress in a moment but before we do you've sort of neatly brought us to do a subject which is you're generally guaranteed to get angry emails from people whenever it's sort of discussed anywhere which is chronic fatigue syndrome this research has led to some ideas as to what might be a cause of that yeah and as you say chronic fatigue is very controversial and you know there are lots of different ideas about it and not everyone agrees um, even that it's one condition and there are undoubtedly a lot of different factors that feed into chronic fatigue there are going to be immunological factors Mm -hmm. things with the nervous system probably genetic factors you know lots of different things going on but yeah so ideas about how the brain is ultimately sort of creating and controlling fatigue has led to certain research approaches for chronic fatigue so with fatigue in general it there's always been this sort of traditional assumption that it's fatigue is a sort of direct result of damage to your muscles and your body if you're pushing yourself too far you know the the muscle fibers are getting exhausted your cells are running out of oxygen and then that feeds a signal back to the brain saying get tired now whereas there's a sort of line of research showing that actually when you push athletes to absolute exhaustion they've got large amounts of muscle reserve that isn't being used and actually we're not running out of oxygen and you can kind of see that as well if you're at the top of a mountain you will feel fatigue much much earlier and that's not because your your muscles are exhausted and people generally still have very good oxygen levels at the point at which they feel fatigued or if you've got flu for example so the idea is that the brain is making you feel fatigued well in advance of any actual physical damage to the body and that's as a safety um, mechanism as a safety mechanism yeah and you can from an evolutionary point of view it'd be incredibly mm. dangerous if you pushed yourself to the absolute limits before you started feeling tired there's a massive kind of safety cushion if you like that can be Uh, moved up and down by lots of different factors you know whether you've got an infection or whether you slept well the night before or how confident you're feeling Uh, I was really struck by you know Olympic athletes where they can like sprint around the track and like they're just obviously putting absolutely everything into it you know and then at the end instead of sort of collapsing with exhaustion they start jogging around and doing victory sit-ups or whatever it is you know there's clearly even though they've pushed themselves to the absolute limit as soon as they finish there's this whole kind of reserve of energy and so one uh, research approach with, with chronic fatigue is that perhaps what's happened is that the brain whatever's triggered it whether often it's a virus that triggers chronic fatigue or a combination of, of, of different things but whatever triggers the chronic fatigue that the brain has massively sort of sh- clamped down on the amount of activity it's allowing if you, if you see what I mean it's as if you've you know when you've got flu you just you can barely turn over in bed mm-hmm. you're so exhausted so it's like that where the brain is just sort of clamped down on the amount of activity it deems to be safe just as somebody who's trying to climb Everest or somebody who's got flu or, or an athlete who's trying to run 100 meters and then for some reason even when the virus goes it doesn't lift 
again um, and so the there's a treatment approach that's been developed based it's a little, little bit like mini interval training so interval training works by successfully teaching the brain that each successive level of exertion is safe if you like so you push yourself to your limit and you come back that was fine so then the brain lets you go a little bit further mm-hmm. the next time a little bit further the next time so it's um graded exercise therapy for chronic fatigue patients is like that so they might just start off with just turning over in bed once every half an hour and that's it and then maybe you might try and sit up in bed. So just setting these very tiny goals to successively teach the brain that each level of activity was safe. And and I, I spoke to um, one patient that that did work for, and there are trials suggesting that that does work. But it's incredibly controversial um, because some patients are kind of unhappy with the whole kind of theoretical framework that goes into that. So it's kind of a minefield. And that, that woman you interviewed, it took her five years. It took five to, years. Yeah, yeah, it's not like yeah. a magic kind of cure. And, you know, and even at the end of that, she still has to be careful not to push herself too hard or, or she might relapse. But it showed that, it, you know, for her at least, you know, she, she was at a point where she couldn't even get out of bed and now she lives a relatively normal life. You know, she met me for lunch and she'd cycled there and she works part time. So, yeah, I mean, and it does, chronic fatigue is an incredibly complex condition. There are going to be all sorts of things feeding into that. But, you know, we don't have a lot of good treatment options. So kind of anything that might mm-hmm. work, I would have thought would be good news. And it's not at all suggesting that these symptoms have been sort of imagined somehow, you know, quite the reverse, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, it's it's a controversial line of research, but it's one that I do think is really interesting and it fits with this idea that these symptoms like pain fatigue depression are ultimately being controlled by the brain and that if we can kind of harness that somehow and find ways to sort of tweak that then maybe there'll be some benefit for patients there i'm hannah fry you're listening to resonance fm and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture let's move on to talk about a type of treatment that definitely has sort of like quackery alarm bells around it hypnosis so you look at particularly, uh, again, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which seems to crop up quite a lot in this interview and in the book, in Manchester. Who, tell us about that study. Yeah, well, this is a whole line of research where a gastroenterologist in Manchester called Peter Warwell has been working with patients with irritable bowel syndrome. When he started as a, a consultant 20, 30 years ago, he really felt that these patients were being let down by the medical profession. They were pretty much sort of diagnosed and then abandoned there wasn't really much that was offered to them and so he started looking into hypnosis initially just because he thought that um, you know hypnosis is supposed to relax you and he thought maybe if they could just learn to sort of you know relax the the gut that maybe that would that would help ease some of their symptoms he ended up trying it with them and, and developing this therapy it's called gut focused hypnotherapy so it's not the sort of hypnotherapy where you're that you might think of where someone's you know you're exploring trauma in early life or regressing someone back into past mm. lives or anything like that there's no sort of psychoanalysis in there it's just focused on the gut and it's using visualization things like imagining your gut as a as a river so if you Uh, have diarrhea you might want to imagine it as a slow moving canal if you have constipation you might imagine a sort of fast moving river so it's um just using visualizations like that to help people to try and regain control over their gut because you know we all know from experience that there's a lot of communication going on between the brain and the gut you know when you're nervous and you get butterflies in your tummy where the blood's leaving the gut Mm -hmm. to go towards your limbs and brain or you know you might empty your bowels completely if you're very nervous about something or have you ever had where you go to a festival you're not happy about the toilet arrangements then you don't poo for days so there's there's a lot of communication between the two and for a lot of us we just would only really notice that in sort of extreme circumstances but for 
people with irritable bowel syndrome that can become sort of a normal state of affairs where that just communication just goes haywire and again there are a lot of other things that feed into irritable bowel syndrome genetic factors dietary factors gut microbes abdominal surgery is a big one like a lot of patients have had previous abdominal surgery which has damaged the nerves of the gut so it's you know it's not just stress mm-hmm. but stress is one factor and peter worrell has found yeah really quite impressive results for a condition where most patients aren't really helped by conventional treatments he was finding that this hypnotherapy was helping 70 to 80 percent of patients for whom all other treatments have failed so that's pretty good for that condition and people were staying well and they were seeing their consultants less often several years down the line not just for their irritable bowel but for everything and yeah I mean I met patients there who you know whose lives were just really devastated by the condition it's often just seen as a bit of a nuisance but these were people like considering suicide some of them just because their lives had just been really destroyed by the condition and hypnotherapy doesn't help everyone but but for some of them it had been really really dramatic the turnaround so yeah hypnosis is a sort of it's very unfashionable should we say for for scientists Um, and I think some of that comes from the you know the history of it but I came away convinced that there is something useful there and I don't see why we shouldn't be able to you know approach that scientifically in rigorous trials the way that they've done in Manchester. We talked about pain earlier and pain management and you look at a technique of using virtual reality as a distraction from pain I guess. Tell us about what was it called Snow World? Snow World yeah yeah, yeah I got I got to try Snow World it was a lot of fun it's an immersive virtual reality ice canyon I suppose you kind of you have the VR goggles and noise cancelling headphones and you're floating down with walls of ice either side little stream running below you you can hear you can call me Al <laughs> playing through the headphones as and, if they haven't suffered enough yeah and you can um, it feels like you're immersed in it you can spin around look up and down there are penguins and snowmen they're throwing snowballs at you you can throw snowballs back at them so it's pretty fun but the idea is to reduce pain in particularly for patients who are undergoing some of the worst pain in medicine which is severe burns patients Um, so they have to undergo these sessions of wound care initially where the dead tissue is being scrubbed Mm -hmm. out of those wounds and then later on as they heal physiotherapy to stretch and and tear the scar tissue as it forms so that they still have range of movement as they heal and patients often say that these are these sessions are worse than the original burn was and even on the safest the highest safe dose of doses of painkillers they're still in agonizing pain and find it very difficult to go through with these sessions so the idea was if they are immersed in snow world during these sessions can that help to ease the pain because the theory behind it is that the brain only has so much capacity for conscious awareness if you like and so if your attention is being grabbed by something extremely compelling, then there's less attention left over for the pain. And in trials, they found that that is indeed the case, that if the patients are playing Snow World during these wound care sessions, it reduces their pain by up to 50% in addition to the pain relief they're getting from the drugs that they're taking. And it does seem to be significantly more effective than other forms of distraction, like music or playing a normal video game, for example. And this immersion seems to be the key they're actually experimenting with the drug ketamine to enhance that sense of immersion which seems to make it work even better and it, it may just be that if the brain is kind of convinced that you're immersed in this safe distant world then those you know those signals that are sort of not relevant to that like the pain signals are just less yeah just less relevant for your survival and less likely to make it through into your conscious awareness and that's certainly how it felt to me I got when I got to try it they were applying heat to my foot burning pain which was really intense and very unpleasant initially but then during snow well I was like barely 
aware of it. You could, I kind of knew something was going on, but I just wasn't really very interested mm-hmm. in that. I was just wanted to get on with playing the game. So, yeah, this is an example of how we can use these psychological approaches. It doesn't have to be placebos. You know, there are other approaches we can use to harness patient psychological resources to ease symptoms such as pain. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Jo Marchant about her latest book Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body and we're going to go back to stress, Jo and the fight or flight reflex and the effect that has on a body and then basically I guess the effect that accumulation of stress has on us Yeah, so I guess it's quite a common idea now that stress is is bad for you, but I was surprised looking into this at how bad it is for you um, and just how wide-ranging the effects of stress are. So, yeah, it basically comes down to the fight-or-flight response. If you are afraid, anxious, I suppose, induces the same thing to a lower level, then there's a lot of changes going on throughout the body that are designed to help you in an emergency. So your your pupils dilate, for example. Um, Blood is diverted from the digestive 
system to the brain and muscles fat and glucose are released into the bloodstream so you've got sort of fuel for whatever you're going to be needing to to do Um, it also triggers um, a branch of the immune system called inflammation which is the the body's first line of defense against infection and injury and so all these changes are useful in an emergency but of course if they are switched on long term that can be very damaging and increase wear and tear on the body so raised heart rate and increased blood pressure for example over time can increase strain on the cardiovascular system and increase the risk of heart disease. Inflammation exacerbates pretty much every chronic um, condition that you might care to to think of. Atherosclerosis, uh, dementia, depression, um, autoimmune disease, stress through the way that it kind of imbalances the immune system also makes us more susceptible to infection. So that's everything from winter cold to um, speeding up the progression of HIV, mm-hmm. for example. There's very good evidence in animals, at least, that stress and inflammation um, speed up the spread of cancer. And so we don't have good evidence in humans yet. Those studies are quite hard to do, but certainly in animals we know that that happens. So, yeah, all in all, over time, stress is pretty bad for you. And I was also surprised, actually, that even immediately as well, stress can be very dangerous. So I use the example in the book of earthquakes. So in several natural disasters like earthquakes and also things like missile attacks, researchers see a spike in deaths from heart failure. So in addition to anyone who's directly killed by Mm -hmm. these disasters, there are some people who are literally just killed by the fear of the event and that's pretty extreme but there are other situations where that extra strain on the cardiovascular system can be very dangerous for example when you're undergoing invasive medical procedures so there are a lot of procedures like keyhole surgery breast biopsies Uh, procedures to destroy tumours where patients are conscious for those and they're given sedative drugs and painkillers but if they're uh, stressed or fearful then that can affect the complications that people suffer so things like dangerously high or low blood pressure or dangerous lack of oxygen long lack of oxygen for example uncontrolled bleeding and so there's quite an interesting line of studies coming out of harvard where they've shown for example that just your mood going into that surgery predicts the level of adverse events that you're going to have Mm -hmm. and then they've also tried um, changing how they communicate with patients to bring down the anxiety and encourage patients to use visualization techniques a bit like self-hypnosis actually to reduce their anxiety and that dramatically reduces the pain anxiety makes the procedures go quicker and it reduces the number of adverse events so that's just a very quick example of how stress even you know in the immediate moment as well can be very important to physical outcomes and we talked about a couple of things earlier on like the hypnosis for instance which are things that are unfashionable and and perhaps the people that are doing those studies would struggle to get funding for them but something that's now incredibly fashionable to be used as a weapon against stress is mindfulness so let's just tell us first of all what what mindfulness is so mindfulness is kind of being aware of the present moment i suppose so just taking a step back and being aware of what you're doing how you're feeling what you're thinking so when people do mindfulness meditation i mean there are lots of different sort of types of it but generally you're just becoming aware of your thoughts and realizing so rather than being sort of completely absorbed and captured in that thought if you like you're noticing that thought realizing it's just a thought and letting it go and there are a couple of ways that that seems to help with our response to stress so Part of it is because you're just focusing on the present moment. Often when we're stressed, it's because we're worrying about things that have happened in the past or things that are going that might or might not happen in mm-hmm. the future. And if you could just focus on the present moment, then that kind of frees you 
from that but also just noticing your thoughts and recognizing them for being just that thoughts rather than reality also helps not to react so when you're thinking of things like oh i haven't got any friends everybody hates me i'm worthless i did that terribly i'm going to be awful tomorrow you know these thoughts that can end up leading into sort of chronic stress and depression it's a way of breaking that cycle and stepping back and realizing that they don't represent reality and i I met a policeman from um, barnsley in Yorkshire who was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a few years ago around the time that his first son was born and he is the kind of person like the last sort of person you would think that would be into mindfulness but as you can imagine he found that diagnosis of multiple sclerosis at around the time that he was you know becoming a father incredibly stressful and he started meditating to try and deal with that stress and said that it's literally transformed his life so that a lot of the agony from having a condition like multiple sclerosis comes from worries about the past you know he used to love walking in the hills around where he lived you know he'd been a kind of bobby on the beat and he loved his job he couldn't do that anymore so all of those things that he you know he used to love that couldn't do anymore and worries about the future he he'd worry that he was going to go blind and not see his kids grow up he worried that he was going to have to suffer unbearable pain he worried that he wouldn't be a good father to his kids if he couldn't do those normal things like play football with them and he said that just being able to let go of that and just focus on the present moment what he was doing at that time if he was playing with his kids to just enjoy that for what it was Mm -hmm. was transformative for him and he insists that he actually has better sort of well-being now than he had before he was diagnosed and for me because it's easy to kind of you know mindfulness is a bit of a cliche it's like oh you know people just have a bit of a backlash against it but talking to him really made me think well if that has helped him to deal with those worries Mm -hmm. that you know anything that I have to deal with just pales in significance compared to that if that's helped him to deal with that then it you know there's got to be something quite powerful going on there well I mean it's interesting you say that about a backlash I mean I know a couple of people who have had quite adverse reactions to doing mindfulness when they've been either through a, you know through a health treatment or somebody whose you know companies are now suggesting you know how can we get more productivity out of workers by forcing them to go and take mindfulness classes and i wonder like how much it's one of those things that seems to perhaps have been introduced not as a better treatment but almost as a sort of a cost-cutting thing and that it's a thing that you know the the government's very keen on for instance whereas a lot of these things that we're talking about as i said are things that are definitely unfashionable and there's a fight of researchers to get them involved mm. i mean have you have you seen any sort of evidence of an adverse effect there's anecdotal evidence of people who've had sort of adverse reactions mm-hmm. to mindfulness in terms of perhaps having a, like a, you know a psychotic episode or something, yeah. I don't. Yeah, this think... is what I, I know someone that this has happened. Right. this has happened to. Yeah, so I I don't think there's good research on that, but there are certain there's certain there certainly are anecdotal reports of that happening, and I think it is perhaps a problem that mindfulness has just exploded so fast mm-hmm. that often the people who are teaching the mindfulness, I mean, I've read reports that they're not always as well trained as they should be, so perhaps you should be careful who's teaching you to do this. Um, and also, there are definitely certain psychological conditions where it's not seen to be a good thing to do mindfulness meditation. So, for example, with patients with depression, it's used once they are well to protect against relapse. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily thought to be a good thing for someone who's in the midst of an episode of depression to be spending too much time alone with their thoughts so it, and, and also what you were saying about you know people doing it at work I do think there's a yeah there's a real problem where people are being pushed to produce more and more and more with less and instead of there being a sort of recognition that this just isn't good working practice and people need to be treated better it's like oh well, we just need to think positive and mm-hmm. do mindfulness and we'll all be able to achieve 
achieve more. So I, I do think there's something quite insidious about that. But in terms of sort of trials, like, you know, there's an eight-week mindfulness meditation course called um, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, for example. So there are hundreds of trials looking at that. And, yeah, there's quite a lot of evidence now, first of all, that it changes... It does change your brain. There are physical changes in the brain. So researchers see not just changes in brain activity when you're meditating, but actually changes in the structure of the brain. So you've permanently changed your brain, if you like. And the changes that they see are the exact reverse of the changes that are associated with chronic stress. So chronic stress seems to increase the sort of the size and connectedness of areas such as the amygdala, which is involved in sort of fear and the emotional response to threat, mm-hmm. while areas like the prefrontal cortex, so emotion regulation and planning, higher order thinking sort of deteriorates. And mindfulness meditation seems to reverse that. And it may be that a lot of other things might reverse that as well. Maybe exercise reverses that too. But mindfulness meditation happens to be something they've looked at and it, it does do that. And then in clinical trials, there's good evidence now that it can reduce chronic pain fatigue anxiety for example in healthy volunteers people with chronic illness like multiple sclerosis um, cancer survivors Mm -hmm. for example and what i think is going to be quite interesting in the next phase of the research is whether that feeds through into physical health so it's got those psychological benefits but does reducing your stress in that way actually then influence the immune system in a way that can reduce your susceptibility to disease for example or that helps autoimmune disease and there are some small studies so far sort of hinting that it can so there was some studies for example suggesting that people who meditated got fewer colds over the winter and that they didn't last as long or there's a couple of trials suggesting that it can slow progression of HIV which we know is very affected by stress and others suggesting that it can boost the response to flu vaccine for example which is quite important in the elderly Mm -hmm. particularly but that research so far is just sort of individual trials and it would be just really interesting to see more work on that to see if that can be validated. I'm Greg Jenner, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, towards the end of this book, you find yourself in Lourdes. So let's talk about why. Well, I wanted to have a chapter on religious belief because there are trials claiming that, you know, believing in God makes you healthier and live longer, epidemiological studies. But that has proved, as you can imagine, to be pretty controversial so I just wanted to look at that um, and then just thinking about where I could go what I could do that would sort of illustrate it Lords just seemed to be an obvious place to go partly because so many people are going there in the hope of yeah. healing but also it's quite unique among pilgrimage sites in that they have this medical committee um, they take the sort of scientific approach very seriously so if anybody claims to have been miraculously cured there is a committee of doctors who will gather all of the evidence so they'll get eyewitness reports from sort of before and after the cure they will request medical records from the hospital of the person they will see whether you know if that person had cancer had they received any chemotherapy which could explain their recovery and so that they then sort of come to a a view on whether or not science can explain the cure if you like and if they decide that it can't be explained then that then goes to the person's sort of home bishop who then I think decides whether it's actually a miracle but you know that intrigued me Mm -hmm. as well I wanted to know what they were finding so but yeah I wanted to know why do people go to Lourdes what do they think that it they get from it because people go back year on year on year on, on year so they're not all being cured so why do they go and yeah it was it was fascinating I got to volunteer in the baths there where you're kind of dunking I was in the female baths obviously mm-hmm. so dunking women in the water and seeing their reactions to that and just talking to people there and attending the masses and it was it was funny because all the people that I was there with I think they they were always kind of saying to me how are you feeling how did you find that you know what do you think and I, it was like they were expecting me to have a kind of conversion moment <laughs> uh, at any time and 
that you know that didn't happen I didn't come out of it religious or anything but I did think it was an incredibly special place and very powerful experience so just these huge masses that you attend with all the the ritual and the pomp and the ceremony so that was kind of bombarding all, all of the senses and just the you know the kindness that people showed the social support so that's a theme through the throughout the book actually mm-hmm. is the importance of social interaction in our health and, and they've got that there in, in spades and that you know in turn really sort of protects us against stress obviously you've got the placebo effect where if somebody is praying to god and thinks that god's going to heal them that's very similar mechanism Mm -hmm. really to what's happening if somebody gets a a treatment from the doctor that they think is is going to heal them so i felt that lords and religious belief in general kind of brought together a lot of the different processes physical processes that i was talking about through the book Um, and it also gave me a chance to look at meaning as well so there are some researchers who are looking at whether meaning and purpose in life can have physiological effects and so there's some interesting work so there was a work on people who spent three months meditating for example um, and they had higher levels of telomerase um, at the end of it than a control group and this is an enzyme that builds up telomeres um, which are the caps on the ends of our chromosomes and so when telomeres wear down that's sort of a key process in ageing mm-hmm. so if you've got more telomerase it builds them back up again so one interpretation of that is that mindfulness meditation was, was helping to protect the telomeres but when they looked at sort of the, the different psychological factors that were going into that one of them was increased meaning and purpose in life and there was another study showing that eudaimonic well-being versus hedonic well-being so people who got their happiness and well-being from sort of a higher purpose if you like literature and art and science and charity work rather than i don't know good food and tv and sex whatever Mm -hmm. the the eudaimonic well-being people had a sort of healthier pattern of gene expression in the immune system so again it's just little studies but there's this idea that maybe it's not something special about god it's just generally having meaning and purpose in your life and that may just be helping to buffer against stress because if you care about things outside of yourself perhaps you're going to be less concerned by those sort of more petty everyday concerns so that just helps people be to rise above those those stresses i suppose and so obviously that was a big factor in, in lords as well well, coincidentally, while you're in Lords, you meet a woman that you talk about later in the book who has breast and then later on bone cancer, who's very much against any form of Western medicine or whatever as, whatever we want to call it, and is, is sort of relying on traditional medicine. And this is, you know, we've you've mentioned this already, but we should reiterate, this is absolutely not a book where you're suggesting alternative or complementary medicine over medicine. However, the people that want to have homeopathy or whatever on the NHS would also be suggesting in their argument of why we should do that the idea that well you know it's obviously doing something even if you know there's been trial after trial after trial that suggests again that it's you know it's there's nothing in it beyond placebo clearly there is some effect that some people find beneficial so are you saying should we advocate people having alternative medicine if they think it helps them well yeah possibly (laughs) i mean how do we how would you sort of argue against those people if we're also suggesting some of the more interesting methods that you talk about in this book where there are clearly sort of signs of it of it being beneficial but not sort of happening how can we then say to people who want to use homeopathy on the nhs that we don't want to do that or perhaps you think that actually we should do that (laughs) Well, with alternative medicines, so there are quite a few like homeopathy, uh, Reiki, um, where there isn't really a, from a scientific perspective, there isn't an active ingredient. Mm -hmm. Um, There's sort of nothing really in them and they are no better than fake versions of those therapies um, in clinical trials. What placebo research shows us is that that 
just perceive a response on its own can be beneficial and actually in some cases can be more effective than conventional treatment. So there's quite an interesting study in more than a thousand patients with chronic back pain where acupuncture and fake acupuncture, there was no difference between the two. So normally people would say, oh, it's worthless, check it out. But in this trial, there was a third group and they got conventional treatment, including painkillers, and they did barely half as well as both the groups that got acupuncture. So there are cases where the alternative treatment, even though it's working through nothing but the sort of psychological effects, is actually better. So, yeah, perhaps some people might argue, well, we should all obviously be going to have alternative therapies. There's clearly a problem with that, which is that these treatments are based on, from a scientific perspective anyway, sort of nonsensical theoretical frameworks. And so there is a danger that people are going to be taken in is maybe quite (laughs) an inflammatory way of putting it. But, you know, if you... If you're going to somebody, you know, these treatments are not working in the way that the therapists say that they're working. So if you go and see them, then you're going to be told all sorts of kind of stuff that doesn't really make any sense. Are people going to be encouraged to then not get the conventional treatment they need if they do have a serious condition? Is it going to undermine trust in science? So there, there really is a problem there. But I think the answer is not what the sceptics usually do, which is to say, insist, oh, no, these things are worthless. They're not doing anything for patients. We, you know, anyone who tries them is an idiot and we shouldn't be allowing it because I think a lot of people are going and having these therapies and feeling from experience that they really are benefiting so when the scientists say to them no you're wrong that's what's damaging that trust in science and those people are going to say well that just proves what you don't know I'm going to go and listen to my alternative therapist thank you very much so I think what we have to do is be honest about it and acknowledge that these therapies really can help people and you know in the long run what we should be doing is researching why and how they are helping people in an evidence-based way and so understanding you know is it the ritual around the needles is it the attitude of the therapist is it the social interaction is it the long consultation we need to be treating all of these aspects and elements of care just as seriously and in just an evidence-based way as we do when we're testing drugs and then we can start to you know we've got a mandate then to incorporate those elements back into conventional care Unfortunately, I don't know how how soon that is or if that's ever going to happen. In the meantime, if somebody is suffering from, say, side effects of chemotherapy or chronic pain and they feel that alternative therapy helps them, you know, I would find it very difficult to say, don't do that because that approach isn't being offered from conventional doctors. But I would just say, be careful of what your therapist is telling you and be open to the possibility that it's not the crystals or the needles or the potion or whatever it is that's helping you it's yourself it's your brain it's the way that that therapy is affecting your brain just one final question then having now written this book has it changed your own approach what have you learned personally and perhaps what could what could listeners learn from it um i mean i'm lucky enough that i'm not in touch with um suffering from a sort of serious chronic irritable bowel syndrome yeah but you know we all have to deal with symptoms like pain depression fatigue we all get bugs and I think this has made me less I don't feel controlled by those symptoms anymore it's kind of empowering to know that the brain plays a big role in how serious you know how severe those symptoms feel to us so if a headache is is coming on I wouldn't necessarily take a placebo but I would know that distracting myself or going out and doing something else or you know if I do take a pill I'll try and really engage with taking that pill and be thinking about it um, and sort of visualizing the improvement that I want to see I think all of those things it's just quite nice to know that I do have some control over those symptoms I don't have to immediately start panicking and be like oh oh no I'm coming down with something I'm going to feel terrible because you really can talk yourself into feeling quite Mm -hmm. ill sometimes and certainly with my kids as well I'm much more aware of how things that I say might implant 
suggestions into their minds um, but also when I'm comforting them you know if my son's fallen over and grazed his knee and I'm hugging him and kissing him better I know that actually that's quite likely to be creating physical changes in his brain you know that's releasing endorphins that is, is helping him so it's you know obviously cuddling them is important anyway but I like knowing that it's doing that physical mm-hmm. thing as well then also like so last night my son started saying that he felt sick he had a tummy ache and then my daughter immediately started saying the same thing and I was probably more tolerant about it because usually I'd be like oh you know just want the attention stop it you know you're lying but actually it might be that just that suggestion is actually creating a physical effect in her so I'm a bit more open-minded about that Um, and then stress as well you know I'm a bit of a workaholic generally and this has really this whole book has reminded me to take that more seriously in terms of kind of having that work-life balance like we know stress is bad nobody wants to be stressed but just knowing the physical toll that that can take but also having sort of evidence-based tools to deal with that from social connections to being a bit more aware of the present moment has um yeah been really useful actually so i've been talking to joe martin we've been talking about cure a journey into the science of mind over body joe thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with us thank you for having me you've been listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.